according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in second, I'm sorry, in Matthew 24. Matthew 24. We'll touch base with the questions and the answers. And then we're actually going to turn over to Luke 21 so that we can move on to point nine in our outline. Before we do that, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Prepare our hearts for the study of truth. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the Life of Christ series, Father, that has gone on for so long now. But each Wednesday we come together. It is a blessing, Father. We're enjoying this. I'm enjoying this. And as we uh, we're dealing with the Olivet Discourse, Father, we realize that uh, he has departed Jerusalem for his final time. Uh, And uh, when he returns uh, tomorrow on that Thursday, Father, or on that Thursday, Yes, that Thursday he'll be returning for his last supper in the upper room. So, Father, uh, we are getting close to the cross. We're getting close to uh, the, the uh, really the, the pivotal moment of the entire universe. And I thank you for that. Now, Father, as we study the deep things of prophecy here related to this uh, study, I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding. Help us to rightly divide the word of truth. Help us to have a discernment that we might... Uh, be able to evaluate competing uh, commentaries and competing interpretations that we ourselves would be equipped to, uh, to discern that which we're reading. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name with thanksgiving. Amen. All righty. Matthew 24, 1 through 51 with its parallel text in Mark 13, 1 through 37 and Luke 21, verses 5 through 36 are very similar in almost every respect. Uh, The one most glaring difference that is to be found in comparing and contrasting these synoptic accounts is the paragraph that we're going to be studying today. It is Luke 21, verses 20 through 24. And uh, so I think it's important that we understand that and understand uh, how we make that determination and how we uh, do uh, evaluate the text in the way that we do. Uh, Before you turn to Luke 21, though, let me just remind you of the questions that are asked. And I think the best statement of them is in Matthew 24, 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us. And and just as you work your way through this verse, understand the three questions that are posed right here in verse 3. Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And... What will be the sign of the end of the age? There's the uh, three questions that are phrased there in verse 3. Once you understand that, then you start to uh, outline the following text. You start to outline the text in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as it relates to those three questions. And so this is what we've done in the outline. I don't have my old notes. So uh, you have these in your subpoints. I think, um, as it relates to... Point six and point eight, uh, point six and seven, where we outlined the uh, questions. I should have brought my other notes. And of course, as I work my way through the slideshow, I'm not going to find them here. That's all right. We've done this before and hopefully you understand. Question one, question two, question three. And Jesus didn't answer them in that order. Okay, just be very clear on that. He answers them in a different order. All right, so under point seven, we saw the three questions. A, B, and C. When will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Now, that very first question, Luke is the only one that records the answer to that question. And that's what we're going to be looking at today under point nine of our, of our outline. And it's recorded in Luke 21, verses 20 through 24. It's actually omitted by Matthew and Mark. 
as you're reading through the text in Matthew 24, they ask three questions, one, two, three, and he answers them three and two and ignores question number one. The second question, what will be the sign of your coming? Jesus answers this question last after he answers the last question first. The last question is, what will be the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus answers that question, but he answers it actually in two parts. He answers first by describing the not yet the end circumstances, and then he describes the end circumstances and answers their questions exactly. What will be the sign of the end of the age? The abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. That is the sign of the end of the age. What is the sign of your coming? We'll be tackling that. That's under point 10 in our outline. All right, so in the main point eight then, we dealt with question number three at some point with A, B, C, D, E, and F. A lot of the information there. Let's move on now to main point nine. We're ready now for... I think we covered all of F, the sign of the end. Yes. All right, so we're ready now for point nine. The uh, answer to question number one, when will these things happen? When will these things happen? Now, the answer is given in Luke 21, verses 20 through 24. It's omitted by Matthew and Mark. So let's turn over to Luke 21, 20 through 24. And in um, Luke's narrative... Uh, The question is asked not as a three-part question, but just simply in verse 7, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And so it's a two-part question, but but both questions are related to these things. And what are these things? Well, the tearing down of these stones. Uh, Verse 6, As for these things which you are looking at, the day will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. That's the these things. And they questioned him saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? When these things are fixing to take place? See, Luke was from Texas. He didn't know that. All right. So he recorded it in that that way. How about that? Now, As they ask their questions, you'll notice in verses 8 through 19, we have a lot of similarities to what we read already in Matthew and in Mark. Um, Wars and disturbances, be not terrified. Uh, These things must take place first. The end does not follow immediately. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, uh, plagues, famines, terrors and great signs from heaven. Uh, And so we have things that are very descriptive. Very much consistent with what we see in Matthew. All right. We get down here to the end. You will uh, endure to the end. You will be saved. Not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But then verse 20. And here is where we depart. Here is where we depart from what Matthew reads and what Mark reads. And here's where we have a distinction. And we've got to evaluate. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... What did we have in Matthew and Mark? We had, but when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And here is where it grabs our attention. Here is where the text is different. So, we have to evaluate. Subpoint A. Similarities and differences must be evaluated to properly relate Luke 21, 20-24, to Matthew 14, 15 through 28. And Mark 13, 14 through 23. Similarities and differences must be evaluated. And this is just a little paragraph here that's nested. It's nested within a larger context. It's nested within a larger context. And uh, the verses prior to Luke 21, 20 match up well. With the verses prior to Matthew 24:15, or the verses prior to Mark 13:14, they match up very well. It's just this nested little paragraph is what we have to evaluate. Likewise, the verses that follow Luke 21:24, those verses that follow this little nested paragraph, 
they line up wonderfully with the verses that follow Matthew 24:28 and Mark 13:24. So I hope that makes sense. We just have this little five-verse paragraph here in 20 through 24. And it's going to have similarities, but it's going to have differences. And this is where, as a principle of hermeneutics, we have to decide. Is this the same or is it different? How do we handle it? Like if a woman comes and is anointing his feet, Jesus' feet with oil and wiping uh, uh, with, with her hair or weeping with her eyes. And you read about that in Matthew. And you read about that in Luke. You say, well, is it all the same thing? Is it the same episode? Is it, is it two accounts describing the same activity? And then you say, well, wait a minute. This is kind of early in his ministry. And this is kind of later in his ministry. Or wait a minute. This is a setting in Galilee. And this is a setting in Bethany uh, the, the week that he's betrayed. Wait a minute. Is it all the same? Or did it happen, is it a similar event that has a lot of similarities, but it actually happened twice, happened two different times? Or the cleansing of the temple, flipping over tables and making a scourge with cords and whipping them and, and so forth. It's described in John and it's described in the synoptics. Is it all one event? Well, in John it appears very, very early. In the, in the synoptics it occurs uh, on Palm Monday, on the, the day of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the week, you know, the week that he's crucified. All right, Doug. So this is something you've got to consider. You put the text, you, you go through these texts and you line up the similarities and you line up the differences and you make an evaluation. All right. So how do we evaluate? Well, ask yourself. Sub point one, then if the differences can be reconciled. Then the passages ought to be considered parallel. If the, pass, if the differences can be reconciled, then the passages ought to be considered parallel. Because remember, the point is that God is a God of truth and nothing in the Bible is a lie. <laughs> right? You, you, the, the one thing that is not admissible is the fact that, well, uh, Matthew gets it right, Luke gets it wrong. That's, that's unacceptable. Luke gets nothing wrong. The Bible is not wrong in any text. So, for example, if uh, Jesus arrives in a location like Gerasim uh, or Gadara, right? And one record says there are two demoniacs there. And another record says uh, that Jesus arrives and he meets a demoniac there. Those are differences in the account. Now, can we reconcile those differences? Well, absolutely we can reconcile those differences. Uh, Matthew records a detail. He's more precise, more uh, informative. Luke doesn't say there was one and only one. Luke just says that he encountered a demoniac there and his name was Legion and so forth. Matthew actually includes additional details that, that tell us, you know what? Legion was not the only demoniac present. There was actually a second demoniac present. They're not contradictory. They're just divergent. They're different based upon the, the authors involved and how they were led and the details they included in their accounts. That's an example where we have uh, differences that can be reconciled. Uh, the, the women at the cross is another one. How many women were standing there at the cross? And what are their names? And when you compare the synoptic records and when you uh, compare the record in, in uh, John... You've got to decide. You've got to answer for yourself. Were there three women there? Were there four women there? Okay. And how many of them are named Mary? <laughs> and, when, and which one of them was the mother of, of our Lord? And which one of them was the mother of James and John? And is that the same as this other woman named Mary? And how do you, how do you reconcile those together? Okay. Because in that place, obviously, you cannot have two separate crucifixions. <laughs> it is the one and the same event. You do have to harmonize those accounts. So, if the differences can be reconciled, then the passages ought to be considered parallel. If the differences cannot be reconciled, if they cannot be reconciled, then the passage cannot be parallel. And I don't care how many similarities there are. If the differences cannot be reconciled, then the passages cannot be parallel. In other words, you're not looking at the same episode, the same event. 
You're looking at two events. Very similar to one another, but happen at different times or in different settings, different places, under different conditions and so forth. If they cannot be reconciled, then the passages cannot be parallel. And the interesting thing about this is that it really only takes one veto. It really only takes one detail to be a determinant factor that says this does not reconcile. For example, um, maybe it's a detail of time early in his ministry before he turns water to wine. Flipping over tables and driving out money changers from the temple versus end of his ministry on the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Monday. That's one detail and only one detail. But to me, it's a three and a half year huge detail, (laughs) right? The time context for that is absolutely obliterates the idea that the only way that you can possibly conflate those two into a single event is if you just absolutely say that um, one of the authors was flat out wrong in the timing for where he put that description in his narrative. And since uh, error is not admissible, we, uh, we have no issues with that. Liberals and folks that don't think God wrote the Bible, they have no problem conflating the episodes. And they say, well, you know, just John was wrong. This should have been early and John wrote it later. This should have been late and John wrote it earlier. Things like that. They have no problem finding flaws in the Bible. In fact, they love finding flaws in the Bible and things like that are part of what they do. Let me give you a third point. Is this simple enough? This ought to be simple enough. Okay. Now, the third aspect though, if there are numerous similarities, maybe there are scads of similarities. Numerous similarities in passages that are not parallel often indicates a typology or a foreshadowing circumstance. And when we encounter things of that nature, we can really be excited about it. All right? We can really be excited about it. Because of the blessing it is to study typology, the blessing that it is to study the foreshadowings and to see the glories of what the Bible is in, uh, in the way that things like this take place. So point three, numerous similarities in passages that are not parallel often indicates a typology or a foreshadowing circumstance. The best illustration I can think of right now is the one we had last week. We spent a lot of time last week talking about Antiochus Epiphanes and talking about Antichrist. And Antiochus is a foreshadowing of the other, of of Antichrist. And yet, in these chapters of Daniel, and I hope you were blessed by that. I hope it wasn't just a side trip that you hated for the whole hour. But Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, both chapters feature a little horn on a beast. And both little horns grow large. And both horns have a boastful mouth. And both horns are uh, at war against the saints. And look at all of these points of similarity. Tons of them. (laughs) And on that basis, because there are so many things that are similar, a lot of scholars, a lot of folks just equate the two. And they fail to recognize that in spite of all of those identical details, there is one veto. There is one contrary point of evidence that, that actually determines, is determined that you cannot reconcile them. They are not the same. And that is the, the, horn, the little horn in Romans 7, I mean in Daniel 7, is on a Roman beast. And that the little horn in chapter 8 is on a Greek beast. And that, the, that if you try to conflate them, then you are actually blending beast number three with beast number four. And Daniel doesn't let you do that. Beast three is beast three, and beast four is beast four. Like the four stages of the statue, the four beasts in chapter seven. And chapter eight goes to extraordinary lengths to tell you that, that uh, the ram and the goat there are Media, Persia, and Babylon, uh, and uh, Greece. That that horn is a Greek horn. That's not a Greek horn in chapter 7. So, what do you do? You say, look at this. There are all these parallels, 
But this one veto is not the same, but they're so close. It's foreshadowing. It's typology. And we learn through watching the shadows, through watching the type, what the impact is going to be when the reality is fulfilled in the anti-type, in the, in the fulfillment of the foreshadowing. So, that's, uh, that's key right there. Now, back to our text in Luke 21. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, some point B now, When I do slides like this, do you understand that there was a 1, 2, and a 3 under A, but then I went ahead and made it disappear and squished up B right under A? Did you notice that? Was that kind of slick? Or do you, would you rather I don't do that? Okay. Yeah, there's a 1, 2, and 3 under A, but just for the purpose of that slide, I made 1, 2, and 3 disappear and I put B up there under A. All right. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, understand now, that's an entirely different context and message from when you see the abomination of desolation. It's not the same. That's a divergent detail. And to me, we have other details in here as well that likewise are problematic if we try to equate them with the sign of the end of the age. All right? And everything that we saw in Matthew. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies is an entirely different context and message from when you see the abomination of desolation. Now some people try to tell you it's all the same. And they'll find reasons for doing so. Uh, There are similarities. Uh, Pregnant women and nursing babies is mentioned in both places. Um, And uh, flee is mentioned in both places. But there are some differences, for example. And as I look at these, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, recognize that her desolation is near. This is a follow-up to when will these things be? What is the sign that they are about to take place or near? And the message that days will come in which there will not be one stone upon another which will not be torn down. And so what we have here is a context whereby he's describing the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. He's not looking forward to Antichrist. He's not looking forward to abomination of desolation. But this is a foreshadowing of that. Okay. Now, um, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are in the midst of the city must leave. I'm reading from verse 21 now. Those who are in the country must not enter the city. Similar to the language we had, in Jerusalem, flee on the rooftop. Don't uh, go into the house. In the field, don't go back for your cloak. Similar language. Slight differences. But then something that's not found there, verse 22, because these are days of vengeance. That wasn't mentioned in the Matthew or Mark records of abomination of desolation and, and uh, so forth. That's a new detail, something interesting, in addition to uh, what we have there. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babes in those days. That's similar. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. Wrath to this people. And this is a difference between Matthew 24 and Luke. This is different language. This is new language. And then verse 24, And they will fall by the edge of the sword. Was that spoken of in Matthew? In Matthew they were told, Flee, endure to the end, and Jesus is coming back. But here we're told they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. A global dispersion. Well, that didn't happen after Second Advent. That didn't happen after um, Antichrist uh, and the things that we see with the abomination of desolation. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that's entirely different context from when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And likewise, the outcome of this, falling by the edge of the sword, led captive into all the nations, Jerusalem trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until... 
the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is a different context. Now, and this is where I believe this, this whole nest, this whole egg, call this an egg of 20 through 24, it sits in the nest of the larger context of Luke 21. Okay? And this egg is different from how Matthew and Mark recorded their narrative of the Lord's message. All right. And then, of course, in Luke 21, 25, he goes on to conclude the Olivet Discourse in very similar fashion to how Matthew and Mark recorded the conclusion of the Olivet Discourse. But it's just this one paragraph that sits differently. This one paragraph that has details that causes us to say, wait a minute. Is this Antichrist in the tribulation or is this something else? And because there are similarities, though, we say, wait a minute. It's not the same event, but it, could it be a foreshadowing of that event? Could it be typology of that event? I believe yes. That what happened to them in the first century when the Roman Empire destroyed Jerusalem is indeed a typology and a foreshadowing of what they have to be afraid of for what is going to happen as Antichrist comes in the, in the tribulational reign. So, the fall of Jerusalem, this is point C, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and the global dispersion of the Jewish people is the best way to take verses 23 and 24. The fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and the global dispersion of the Jewish people is the best way to take verses 23 and 24. Israel is not going to have a um, dispersion. They're already in dispersion in the tribulational era. They're not going to suffer a dispersion in the tribulation era. They're already in a global dispersion in the tribulational era. Another detail, another difference there. It's uh, one of those things you can do when you pick up a Bible commentary. Just, you know, there's passages I, I flipped to. I flipped Isaiah 14 to see what they do with Lucifer. I flipped to Ezekiel 28. I, I flipped to Genesis 6. Those three passages there tell me what their orientation is to the angelic conflict or their orientation is to certain things. Um, I look at Matthew 24 and I look at Luke 21. See, are they a replacement theology type approach? Are they a preterist type approach? Do they, uh, you know, it's pretty well, you know, do they try to shove everything into the first century where there's nothing left moving forward? See? Just little little chapters you can turn to and at a quick glance you can get a, a pretty good clue for where, uh, where the theology is on the, the commentary that you happen to be reading. Doesn't take long. <laughs> All right. Which, by the way, is easier to do at a bookstore like Barnes & Noble. It's tougher to do online at Amazon. But you can still... If, if there's a preview on Amazon, you can still flip where you need to flip and get some, get some things figured out. All right, so when will these things happen? Interestingly enough, if, uh, if this is not, for, the, for those commentaries or those scholars that think this also is tribulation and not um, 70 AD, that's, that's okay. I mean, I don't part fellowship over it or fight over it or whatever, but I, I just think it's, it's an inferior way to handle certain discrepancies in the text. And if not, though, then what they're left with is a very interesting circumstance in which I don't believe you can find any prophecy of 70 AD anywhere in the Lord's messages, if not here. If this is not pointing to Titus and the destruction of, of, of Jerusalem in 70 AD, I don't know that we have a picture of it anywhere. Possibly uh, some of the Old Testament prophets, but I think most of those are looking forward to um, either the if pre-Babylon, the Babylonian captivity, or they're looking forward to, to Second Advent more so than they're looking forward to 70 A.D. But that's uh, that's a question for another uh, another class. All right, and that's really all he has to say on question number one. <laughs> you know, they're all impressed with the temple, and he says it's getting torn down. And they wonder, well, when's that going to happen? What will be the sign of that? And he answers it very briefly 
and only one of the synoptic gospels records it. The other two ignores it and goes on to answer the more important matters. What is the sign of the end of the age? What is the sign of his second advent? The sign of his coming. And so for that, you need to have the doctrine as it relates to Daniel and as it relates to these other things. All right. Which moves us on then to point 10. The final question that he answers is question number two. Main point 10. Question number two. What will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of your coming? And this is the final answer that he gives. Remember, we don't, uh, we're not blaming the disciples for asking their questions out of order. Old Testament prophecy didn't exactly have a clear sequence or even a distinction between first and second advent. So they are to be forgiven for um, asking questions out of order. We, uh, we put a lot more stock into the order of the answers that he gives as being indicative of the proper order in a sequence of events. What will be the sign of your coming? And this is the final answer given. And for this, we have Matthew 24, 29 through 31, Mark 13, 24 through 27, and Luke 21, 25 through 28. Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31, Mark 13, 24 through 27, and Luke 21, 25 through 28. All right, and let's go ahead and return to Matthew. We've done the bulk of our study in Matthew, so let's return to Matthew 24 and take a look at these. Probably we have the fullest information and the most detail. But immediately after... The tribulation of those days. All right. So when do you think this is going to happen? <laughs> okay. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. But I'm serious, though. Please laugh with me here this morning. There are scholars and authors and Bible students and people that they make things more complicated than they need to be. And they fail to take the Bible at face value. They don't have a literal hermeneutic. They don't accept plain language statements. This text says immediately after the tribulation of those days. All right. I'm cool with that. <laughs> I, uh, this is, again, you're looking at similarities. You're looking at differences. You're looking at when you have pinpoint accuracy on the timing of something, accept that. And then use that as a determinate factor as far as whether other details can be harmonized with it or not. And in particular, I think as we study this, maybe the best thing we're going to have for this is we're going to have the undeniable proof that this cannot be the rapture. And we can't follow after those folks that try to confuse Second Advent with rapture. They get all confused because they read verses here about, oh, one will be taken and one will be left. And... Uh, you know, two men in the field and one will be taken and one will be left and two women grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one will be left. And they'll be like, oh, oh, that's, that's rapture. That's rapture of the church right there. No, it's not. Okay. And it's sad. And I think if you just work your way through it, line upon line, precept upon precept, attention to detail, allowing the plain language of the text to lay it out for you, Things get very, uh, I think they become crystal clear. Now, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky. And there's another detail. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. That's going to be something. You thought the earthquake yesterday was uh, made the news. I grew up on the West Coast. I was kind of laughing a little bit about, man, was that an overreaction or what were they doing? You would have thought that uh, the Washington Monument fell over or something. All right. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. You know, Satan's going to be cast to the earth. 
and um, his access out of heaven is going to be revoked. Here at this stage, that happens earlier, right? here at this stage, even the authority and the energizing empowerment that they have enjoyed up till now is going to be stripped away. It's going to be interesting. We'll study that here in a moment. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. So when do you think that's going to happen? Right? I mean, just take the plain language here and understand, all right, tribulation, sun, moon, and stars, dark, sign appears. Just work your way through the sequence. This passage is taking pains to put these things in an order. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Wow. Okay. And how do people conflate that with a rapture? Boggles the mind, doesn't it? I mean, do you see that anywhere in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15? I think a rapture is going to be a rather quiet event, private. We'll be snatched out and the world will wake up wondering where did everybody go. And uh, certainly it's not going to be globally observed, not like this. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. That's going to be awesome. And then we've got a couple of parables. Parable of the fig tree in verses 32 and following. The imperative to be ready in 42 through 51. And then we even launch into Matthew 25. The continuation of the Olivet Discourse that's not even recorded in Mark or Luke. With the parable of the virgins, parable of the talents, sheep and goat judgment. A whole lot more to go. All right. Well, we're going to limit it to 29 through 31 for right now. What will be the sign of your coming? Can't miss it. It'll be the only thing shining up there once the sun, moon, and stars go out. <laughs> All right. And even uh, even the thickest of, uh, of folks are going to catch on to that one. The whole world is going to be undeniable. Absolutely undeniable. Hmm. <laughs> All right. So point A, sun, moon, and stars will be darkened. Sun, moon, and stars will be darkened. Replaced by a single sign appearing in the sky. Now, we're not told that that sign is itself a star, but I think it's understandable, natural in context to, to think of it in that way. The sign of his first advent was a star that uh, the Magi were clued into and followed to uh, Jerusalem and then to uh, Bethlehem. So I, I don't have any... My, my conclusion, my opinion, my uh, understanding is that it will be a star-like sign, if not a star itself. Sun, moon, and stars will be darkened replaced by a single sign appearing in the sky that undeniably indicates the Son of Man with power and great glory. He's not going to come humble riding on a colt. He's not going to come uh, as, a, as a babe in a manger for second advent. That sign is going to appear. My thinking, too, is that it actually grows larger and larger and larger. It's kind of the follow-up to what happens with, wor with Wormwood when Wormwood appears. We'll talk about that a little bit perhaps as well. So would that get your attention? I think so. Specifically, and especially because it happens more than once. That is that the sun, moon, and stars are darkened in the tribulational period. It happens during the uh, seals. It happens during the trumpets. And then I believe it happens a third and final time here to herald the imminent arrival of the sun. Remember, we, we can track the days, but it, those days will be cut short. And it's not said how short. Is it cut short by a matter of hours, or a matter of days, a matter of weeks? We don't know. But they will be cut short for the sake of the elect. <clears throat> Point B. Similar warnings take place at least twice in the tribulation. And 
scripture on this. Revelation 6, verses 12 through 16. Revelation 8, 12. Revelation 16, 8. Revelation 19, 17. And trying to reconcile Matthew 24 with Revelation is interesting and different people do it in different ways. And I think it's legitimate to evaluate how they blend or how they harmonize. Like it's it's interesting to try to uh, harmonize Revelation with Daniel. Where do the two, three and a half year periods fit in? Related to the, the seals and trumpets and bowls. All right. Similar warnings take place at least twice. Now I say similar because they feature the sun, moon, and stars. But they don't feature the appearance of the one sign. And as a matter of fact, the sun, moon, and stars go dark and then evidently they light back up again. Until the next time the sun, moon, and stars go dark, right? So similar warnings take place at least twice in the tribulation. But mankind goes back to its own ways each time when the heavenly order is restored. Mankind goes back to its own ways, pursuing Antichrist, pursuing Satan and the dragon, doing all this stuff. Mankind goes back to its own ways each time when the heavenly order is restored. So let's uh, turn to Revelation, see what we're talking about here. Starting in chapter 6. All right. Revelation chapter 6. Jesus is worthy to open the seals. And as he's opening the seals, these things are happening here on earth. Realities in heaven reflected by events on earth. And so I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice, a voice of thunder, Come, I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. This is not Christ. This is Antichrist. The white horse rider posing as a man of great peace. This isn't Jesus. Jesus is up in heaven breaking the seals. All these things are happening here on earth. And then Jesus breaks the second seal. And here comes a red horse rider. So we have peace. Then we have war. Then we have famine. Then we have death. The fifth seal, we see martyrs. The sixth seal. Verse 12, I looked when he broke the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Does that get your attention? <laughs> Especially since most of the mountain island mountains are volcanoes anyway. Um, I wouldn't want to be a Hawaii resident when, uh, when this takes place. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So, you know, disasters hit, and uh, humanity gets fearful. But how long does that fear last? How long does that, until the shock and the awe kind of wears off? And then what happens the next day when the sun comes up again? Oh, I guess we're all right. Yeah. And the next night, there's the unbloody moon and there's all the stars. Oh, okay. Whew. Wow, that was something. And then the explanations start coming from the trusted governmental sources on high. Not to worry. Relax. Everything's under control. It was a sign. It was a sign of such and such. Trust us. We're okay. 
And people will believe it because they want to believe it. <laughs> and because they trust their hero. They love this man. <clears throat> talking about the beast. Talking about Antichrist. <clears throat> all right. And it, and it is interesting, too, because when you, uh, you read through all this and you go, wow. If you think that the sun, moon, and stars stay that way for the rest of the book, then it's sure going to be dark in these other chapters. <laughs> but then in chapter 8, you have the trumpets. Remember, you have seal, seven seals, but the seventh seal is itself the seven trumpets, and then the seventh trumpet is itself the seven bowls. And uh, what happens here in 8.12 with the fourth trumpet? <clears throat> the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck. And, and you're, if you're just reading this for the first time ever, you might be scratching your head and saying, well, wait a minute. I thought the sun was already dark. I thought the moon was already like blood. I thought the stars were already cast down to the earth like a fig tree casting its... How come it appears to be happening all over again? How come it appears to be back to normal? And I think that's an indicator. I think that's part of what we see as a lot of the early judgments seem to be warnings that intensify later. And they don't seem to be of a permanent effect. And like I say, I think it's the next morning the sun comes back up again. And, and mankind goes back to its own ways each time when the heavenly order is restored. And I've, I just view that as being all too typical of mankind and rebellion. Think about um, even Christians. <laughs> Under divine discipline, kind of straighten up and are humbled and repent and get right and say, you know what, my life's a wreck. And they knuckle down and they get back under doctrine and they get back and, and uh, they respond to the discipline until things kind of return back to normal and things start working out all right again. And yeah, All right. And then they start drifting back into their darkness again. Tragic pattern for humanity. <clears throat> so, and what I find interesting here, after a third of the sun, third of the moon, oh no, before that, look at uh, verse 10. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and, in the sp uh, and on the springs of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. Uh, I think about that a lot as I consider the nature of the sign of the Son of Man as a great star that appears in the sky and it comes closer and closer and closer and it's going to come and eventually crash on the earth as Jesus Christ lands on the Mount of Olives. <coughs> Won't be Wormwood though, I'll tell you that, when Jesus comes back. Now, alright, so you have chapter 6, chapter 8, chapter 16. Chapter 16, now we're talking about bowls. Now we're talking about bowls. If you are reading Revelation commentaries, be careful. Some would tell you that it's all the same. The seven seals are the seven trumpets. They are the seven bowls. I believe it's better to take them in sequence, and I teach them in a sequence. Specifically because the seventh of, of the first sequence is the second sequence, and the seventh of the second sequence is the third sequence, and you've got to take them as a sequence of 21. Anyway... Um, <clears throat> here you have the bowls in chapter 16 and uh, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and it was given to it to scorch men with fire and so here the sun doesn't go out here the bowl hits the sun and it's like uh, you know a solar flare you can imagine Right? Like throwing gunpowder on a on a campfire. Ever done that? Don't. Okay. Um, and so here's the angel pouring out his bowl upon the sun. It was given to it to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat. They blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him the glory. So the sun obviously here has not been 
extinguished along with the moon and the stars so that the single sign of the Son of Man appears in the, in the air. Where does that event take place? How do, we, how do we synthesize, how do we mesh the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25 with Revelation? All right. It's, uh, it's more of an art than a science. <laughs> and I'll tell you right now, that is, if God wanted them to be precisely meshed, then he would have cited Matthew 24 when he wrote Revelation to say this is that which was spoken of by Jesus when he said, etc., etc. That never appears. That never takes place. And so we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. We have to rightly divide the word of truth. We have to study to show ourselves approved. We have to do line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And I believe it means we ought to be gracious towards others um, that uh, if Tommy Ice and Tim LaHaye have one particular slant on it and and uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum has a slightly different slant on it and uh, uh, you know, theme may be taught in a little different way. Uh, we don't uh, we don't get all up in arms and get insistent and dogmatic and and uh, particularly since none of us are going to be here to see these things unfold, right? We're all going to be in heaven and then we'll see it from the... Uh, We'll be looking down when uh, Jesus breaks those seals and watching these things. All right. So there's the use of the sun there. That's uh, bowl number four in uh, Revelation 16. One more time. Revelation 19. Revelation 19 and verse Understand where verse 17 comes because in verse 11, <coughs> and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. We had that question a couple of Wednesdays ago, the, the white stone. And you and I can receive this as well. This is a reward to the overcomer, that uh, a white stone and a name written on it, which no one knows but you and, and the Father who names you. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, and white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He has at least three, four names mentioned in this one context. Four names right here. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, <clears throat> saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble. For the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. Now this angel standing in the sun. It's the last use of sun that we have here in this context in Revelation. And this, I think, is where it's best to put the Matthew 24 29, sun, moon, and stars will be darkened. Sun, moon, and stars to be darkened right after 17 and 18 here. So the angel stands in the sun, cries out with a loud voice, and the sun goes dark, the moon goes dark, the stars are, are darkened. The powers of the heaven are shaken. And uh, this is where the uh, commands are issued. And then the sign of the Son of Man appears and so forth. And then verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. How do they know to assemble against Jesus Christ? I think it's the sun going dark and the sign appearing in the heavens. Jesus Christ is coming back at second advent. All the armies of mankind are gathered at Armageddon. They're all gathered, no longer intent on destroying the Jewish people, 
Now they're intent on actually preventing the second advent of Jesus Christ from taking place. <clears throat> Assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Well, he's not going to do very well. Verse, he lasts a single verse here. <laughs> verse 20. How's that, uh, how's that war going for you? Um, the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence and by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which, throw, which burns with brimstone. They are not thrown in hell. They don't uh, wait in hell for the millennium and then come out to stand at the great white throne judgment and then go into the lake of fire. They go immediately into the lake of fire. They are the first occupants of the lake of fire. They will not stand at the great white throne. They've already had their judgment. They've already had their judgment. They were judged by the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. All right. So, uh, when I take Matthew 24 and relate it, <coughs> mesh it with Revelation, uh, the sun, moon, and stars will be darkened, Matthew 24, 29. I do not relate it to chapter 6. I do not relate it to chapter 8. I do not relate it to uh, 16. I do think it comes right there after the angel is standing in the sun and crying out. And... Um, because he's saying to all the birds which fly in the mid-heaven, the elect angels, and this is where the powers of the heavens are shaken and the fallen angels are stripped of their authority. And, and uh, I think it's best to relate that to this and then uh, the sign of the Son of Man appearing in between verses 18 and 19 there, which is why the armies are then assembled. The armies are then assembled to wage war, no longer to destroy Jerusalem, but to wage war against <coughs> Jesus Christ and to prevent his second advent. All right. I've got two minutes left. Under point C, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, stated in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. All the energizing power of the fallen angels and demons is broken, leaving the human armies in dread. Leaving the human armies in dread. They've actually been pretty victorious up till now. Uh, remember, prior to this, the abyss is opened and 200 million demons are unleashed upon the world. And uh, this vast army comes from the east, either China or India or both. Both populations today are over a, a billion people. Um, their populations will be much smaller once a third of the earth, a third of the earth, a third of the earth keep getting wiped out. <clears throat> but still, it is... Uh, reasonable to assume that 200 billion could be coming from the east and uh, not just human soldiers but imagine 200 billion I believe demoniacs <laughs> 200 billion uh, humans energized and strengthened like uh, legion busting up of chains and uh, Ten people trying to take hold of them and, and being thrown off and all the things you see. A demoniac has incredible strength. <coughs> Imagine 200 million of them marching on Jerusalem. Okay. All the energizing power of the fallen angels and demons is broken, leaving the human armies in dread. And this, by the way, is what happened. I'm out of time now, but we'll come back to this. In Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, several times we see that there was a demonic component involved in Joshua's conquest in Canaan. That uh, Satan had already populated the land with giants, with Nephilim, during Israel's slavery in Egypt. And then when they came back and when they had to conquer under Joshua, they had to deal with Nephilim giants. And they had to deal with demoniacs. And so it was critical for them that the Lord of hosts, the captain of the Lord of hosts, would go before them and actually strip away the uh, demonic uh, empowerment that, uh, that they were going to be facing. And he did that. And so we'll see Exodus 23, 27, Joshua 2. There's some other passages. I might expand that a little bit. There's some other passages in Numbers and Deuteronomy, I think, that also tie in there very well. And so... Uh, I don't know, we may not spend a lot of time there, but if you understand it as a concept, 
then you'll realize that it's really nothing new. It's coming back again. It's, it's, been, it's been the case. Uh, it seems like there were a lot of demon uh, warfare going on in Christ's first advent, right? I mean, every time Jesus turned around, here's more demoniacs. And his apostles can't seem to drive them out. And so uh, imagine when uh, the, the gate is unlocked, when Apollyon takes the key and unlocks the abyss. And imagine what it was like in Christ's lifetime, now global, demoniacs everywhere. Man, something to, something to consider. Well, Father, I thank you for your truth. Thank you for the faithfulness of your word. Thank you for equipping us to rightly divide and continue to equip us, Father, to understand where passages are parallel, where they're not parallel, where there's typology in view and, and where there's not. And how we can properly mesh Daniel to Matthew and Daniel and Matthew to Revelation and how we can uh, harmonize the totality of everything you revealed with respect to the things to come. Father, it's our privilege and our blessing to study to show ourselves approved and thank you for pre uh, preparing a lampstand where such studies can take place. I thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.